Couldn't ask for a better way to start the week. Coming together, reading God's Word together, hearing God's Word taught as we did in Sunday school, and pray we hear it over the next couple of hours. Singing songs and hymns and knowing that soon this earth will dissolve, as I said, and if we can actually grab a hold to that, then maybe we can have the boldness that these apostles have here in chapter 5. That's something we should aspire to. If you would open up Acts chapter 5, today we will go 17, verse 17 through 42. Verse 17, we'll finish up the chapter. But as we're here, just to kind of bring you up to speed, in the book of Acts, the church has really began to explode. The gospel is just exploding. Thousands, tens of thousands are coming to faith in Christ in Jerusalem. We're still just in Jerusalem really at this point. They have yet really to really get out, like he said, go to Jerusalem and then Samaria and then to the rest of the world. We haven't made those steps quite yet. But the gospel is growing. People are, are being healed. That actually causes a ruckus in Acts 3. You know, Peter heals that lame man there in Acts chapter 3 and then in Acts chapter 4 they arrest Peter. They threaten Peter and John telling them do not preach anymore in this man's name. So we move on. They pray for boldness, knowing those threats were, were serious. You know, that it wasn't just idle threats. So they prayed that they would have the boldness and courage to continue the mission and the message that the Lord had given them. As we work into chapter 5, they're, they're still going to the temple every day, still teaching the people every day. People are coming to them. People are being healed. You think everyone would be excited but verse 17 starts off with a big but. Not everyone's excited about this. So as we work into this passage tonight, I would title this section, Honored Through Dishonor. Honored Through Dishonor. These apostles will be honored by God, but they will be dishonored by men. Many of those oxymorons that we kind of spoke about in Sunday school, how you have... To gain your life, you must lose it. He who is first will be last. All those type things the Lord teaches. Here, actually obeying God is disobeying man. Here, they, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, think they're fighting for God. And in reality, they're fighting against God. They have this wait-and-see approach. In reality, God has shown them time and time again. And it's actually unmistakable evidence. They have... No way to explain some of the things they're seeing. So it's all through this. We just can't help but see this oxymorons, as I said here. They're going to be honored through dishonor. So if we go back to verse 16. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. You see here, they're filled, as it says here, with jealousy. Look over in, in chapter 13, just to kind of give you uh, the attitude of the religious leaders. Acts 13 gives you the attitude. I mean, it says they're, they're jealous, but we're not really sure why. Acts 13 really explains this. This is going to be the Apostle Paul. Remember, the Apostle Paul is not on the scenes in Acts 5. We're just turning here so we see the, the heart of the Pharisees. 
Acts 13, verse 33, the Apostle Paul here preaches a passage or references a passage in Psalm 2. Then in 13.34, he references Isaiah 55. Then in 13.35, he references Psalm 16. Then down in, 40, in 41, he references Habakkuk. All these Old Testament scriptures. And we see in verse 42, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. Will you please come back and teach us some more of the Word of God? Verse 44, the next Sabbath. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. You'd think they'd be happy. Even the religious leaders should be happy about this. They're, they're reading the Old Testament. They're, they're, they're not just talking about, they're, they're pointing out Jesus throughout the Old Testament, but that's what they're teaching the people here. You'd think they'd be excited. But we see plainly in verse 45. But when the Jews, that is the religious leaders, saw the crowds... They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So why were they jealous? Because of the crowds. Because Paul and Barnabas at this point was, was you know, being lifted up. Not them. They wanted their name. Their name should be made great. Not Paul, not Barnabas. Same thing here in Acts 5. So if you go back to Acts 5 now. So now that we see their attitude, we know exactly why they're jealous. Because the apostles, in this case it's going to be Peter and the, and the twelve, they're, they're healing people, they're teaching people, and people are, are just flocking to them. And their name, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, their name's not being made great. That's the problem with this thing. That's their rub. So all the... All the people are gathered from all the towns around Jerusalem to bring in the sick, those afflicted, and they're all being healed, but the religious leaders are jealous. And they want to put a stop to this. They'd prefer for people not to be healed rather than showing another honor whom they deemed was due to them. That's a very, very arrogant view. And I do think it can creep into churches. If there's a church across town that is opening up the Scripture, preaching the Bible, preaching Jesus Christ and Him alone, and God is blessing that church and that church is growing, we don't need to be jealous. We need to be thankful that souls are being saved. And that's not where they're at here. They're jealous. Filled with jealousy, they arrest the apostles. This jealousy drove them to action. And this is the group that killed Jesus. This is the group that had previously threatened John and Peter. They arrested them. Or I guess this probably, in my mind, should, should better read, they had them arrested. Because the religious leaders likely didn't take matters into their own hands. I know I think the New American Standard and other translations said they laid hands on them. But that just seems a little out of character for these religious leaders. They didn't seem to be the ones who would get their hands dirty. And then if you look down in verse 26, it says there, the captain of the temple with his officers went and brought the apostles back in. So it does seem like it's their, their civil police arm that they send out to bring them in. They had them arrested is what I think is being taught here. And it does say that Peter... 
In, in Acts 4, it was really just Peter and John that were the two that were arrested. But here, all 12 are arrested. All 12 of the apostles are arrested at this point. Verse 19 says, But, so they, they were not happy, but guess what? God's got other plans. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak the life and speak to all the people all the words of this life. So, we're going to begin here in verse 19. This is going to be one of three prison breaks we're going to read in, in Acts. But, the religious leaders in their jealous rage had laid hands on these men and had these men arrested. But God sends an angel. And the Sadducees did not believe in angels. <laughs> so that's what's so funny. God uses an angel to deliver them, and they don't even believe in angels. But they're so blinded. They think they're fighting for God. In reality, they're fighting against God throughout this. Verse 20, you know, the angel of the Lord is going to release them. And it's not head for the hills. Rather, it's to go back to the front lines. Go back to the temple. Go and stand in the temple. Because that's where they were when they were arrested the first time. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people. And what are they, what are they to speak? All the words of this life. So, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should never perish but have eternal Life, that is the life they are to speak to the people. This life they are to proclaim. Everlasting life in Jesus Christ. By the way, the Sadducees wouldn't have, would have rejected that as well. Because they didn't believe in an everlasting life. They didn't believe in an afterlife. And some of your translations may have the word life capitalized. The ESV does. The New American Standard, the Legacy Bible, and others. Now, that is a translator's choice, but I think what's being taught there is that it's a noun. Even in the Greek, it's a noun, so maybe it's a, it's a proper noun, it's a proper name, it's a synonym for Jesus. Maybe that's what we see. Because Jesus did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So maybe that's what we're being taught here. And it, it does seem to work with Acts 9. In Acts 9, we have the Apostle Paul. He has these letters from the high priest. And it says he's going so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them in bound to Jerusalem. And the way there is capitalized. So the way there, again, is being a synonym for Jesus. Because Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So maybe in the same way they capitalize the way in chapter 9, they're capitalizing the life here in chapter 5. So he's to go into this, back into the temple, and they're to speak, all the, to speak to all the people all the words of Christ. Verse 23. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. You know, it's just... Picturing these things, you know, you have to read a narrative and you, you're trying to get your mind wrapped around how this is unfolding. And you can just picture them leaving that jail cell, high-fiving one another, you know, 
And somebody said, did, uh, did he say something about going back to the temple? Surely he didn't mean tomorrow, did he? You think he meant tomorrow? It says at daybreak. At daybreak. They're back on the front lines at daybreak. That's incredible. They began to teach. Again, this in the Greek is the imperfect verb. It means an ongoing action. So they're teaching over and over and over and over, preaching, proclaiming the words of Christ over and over and over and over. Incredible. So they, began, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together to council all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So they're out, they've been released by an angel. They're back on the front lines preaching. The, the high, this whole Sanhedrin has no idea What's happening? They're, they've come together, going to pass judgment on these prisoners, and they're even, there's no one in prison. They're probably you know, discussing things, maybe a you know, small chit-chat you can imagine. How'd you sleep? Things along those lines. But the, the Sanhedrin assembles here, and they're going to send for the apostles. They're going to send for the sent ones, as we could say. So we see here, in verse 23, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. So they go to the jail cell to bring out the twelve, and they're not there. Now, we've been informed that they're, they've been released. The angels come and release them, and now they're back on the front lines. They're back in the temple. But here, the officer went and could not find them. And this is not like me when I say, I can't find my socks, I can't find my ketchup. And the truth is, they're right there, I just didn't look hard, right? This is not the case. This word here is actually used by Luke in Luke 6, and it's used this way. The scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They were intently searching and looking for a reason and a charge to lay on Jesus. That is what they did here. You imagine they walked in that jail cell and they turned that place upside down. This wasn't just a haphazard look and I didn't see them. They're, they intently searched for these prisoners and found none. So, verse 23 really gives us some details and it's going to show the extent that, that, these, that these prisoners, I mean, the extent that these officers went through to secure these 12 men. Verse 22, I'll read again. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Look, this is not a well-planned escape that just got a credit to the God. That's, that's not what's going on here. There's no human explanation for what has happened. Rather, God has supernaturally intervened. Which, I, if you want to look in chapter 23, verse 8, I, I quoted this earlier, but just so you know that I'm, 
I'm not pulling this from extra biblical sources. It's actually told to us in Scripture. Acts 23, verse 8, the Sadducees, who is the leading party we're reading about here, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. There is no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There's no afterlife, they would even go on to say. But yet God uses an angel to deliver these men, which they deny to begin with. They deny the resurrection, and that's exactly what they're out preaching, the resurrected Christ. So just everything about this is just ripping their theology to shreds. So they found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would this come to. They're perplexed, but they're not persuaded. And their main concern is, what would this come to? Where's this going to end? They're at a loss for words. Again, their theology's wrecked. Their understanding of the Scripture is now shown to be erroneous. Their authority's disregarded. The people are flocking to the apostles. Their names are not being honored. They're just at a loss. And then, verse 25... Someone came and said, look, look, the men who you brought, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Standing in the temple and teaching the people. What did, what did the angel instruct them to do back up in verse 20? Go and stand in the, t- in the temple and speak to the people. That is exactly what these men are doing. You talk about boldness. This is, this is boldness. Verse 26, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They were afraid of being stoned by the people. They feared the people. They didn't fear God. Strange. But why would they be stoned? Well, people were coming and being healed. And just imagine if you're there with your child who has some infirmity or some lifelong illness, and, and everyone who's coming to him is being healed, you can take him, but not till he heals my son. And then the guy behind him is going to say the same thing. You know, they, they, were, they were going to pull away these, these, these men who were performing these miracles and healing all these people with these lifelong illnesses. This is an incredibly tense situation. There's no doubt about it. This, is, this could have get unraveled. This could have unraveled quickly. But the apostles did not put up a fight. That's, you see that throughout this. Look, the captain of the officers went and brought them in. Not by force. So they, they kind of just submitted themselves to these officers. They were not a, resisting arrest. When the authorities came, they peacefully submit. They could, could they have resisted arrest? Absolutely. The people were on their side. Are y'all just going to let them take us? Somebody needs to record this. They're violating my First Amendment rights. But look, if this country outlaws Christianity... We still meet, we still sing, we still worship. 
And when the authorities come, we peacefully submit. I think we have Jesus Christ as an example of that in the garden. We have the apostles here. Twelve of them. None of them seem to say, hey, I think we need to fight this. Even Peter, who was willing to fight in the garden, seems to submit to this. There's no scriptural basis for resisting arrest. God is sovereign, and perhaps He's placing us in jail to save the guards, like the Philippian jailer. Perhaps. Here they're going to take the opportunity, and they're going to preach the gospel yet again. It's not going to be received with remorse. It's going to be received in rage. But you never know what God has in store. You can look in the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 7. It says there that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So maybe God is doing a work in this as they're being arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. Verse 27 and 28. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The high priest brings them in, they question them, You don't get the questions like, if you don't mind me asking, how'd you get out? Hey, if you, why why would you go back to the temple? Preaching the very thing we told you not to do, the very thing we just had you arrested for, why would you go right back? They, I think they knew how they escaped. They knew it was the hand of God. They knew that. They knew why they were in the temple preaching. Peter had made no bones about it when they told him originally, do not speak anymore in this man's name. He told them, I will obey God and I will preach. I cannot help but preach for what I've seen and heard. So they knew he was going to be doing this. There was no question about it. Instead, the question they ask is this, why have you not obeyed our strict orders? You know, it's, it's, it's... Ironic that you take the fact that they broke a number of God-given laws in that kangaroo court in which they condemned Jesus. God's laws can be ignored in their mind. But how dare you ignore our? How dare you disregard our strict orders? And you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. Man, if you're... Teaching mirror scripture, this is, a, this is a compliment, is it not? Wouldn't it be great if you're teaching field Tuscaloosa? Assuming it's biblical. No, we don't want error to field Tuscaloosa, but if you're preaching the Word of God and teaching the Word of God and your teaching fills your town, what a compliment. And then they have this odd thing. Now they're you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're trying to act like we did this. Apparently they had forgotten what they said in Matthew 27. 
Matthew 27, verse 24. This is, this is Pilate. He comes out. He takes the water. He washes his hands before the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. They respond. All the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And they released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. When they plainly had called that down on themselves. Fine. If you won't do anything about it, we will. Just let his blood be on us and our children. But Peter responds to this. In verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So Peter responds. He, he recognizes the opportunity and he preaches the gospel. We're fixing to, to see this as we read on. Look, I think we, oftentimes we may pray for opportunities, but let's be real. We have opportunities. Amen. What we need to pray for is boldness for when those opportunities present themselves that we don't back down or shy away from it. That's what we need to pray for. Peter does not capitulate on this. He doesn't compromise on not one point in this. Here's why we disobeyed your strict orders. We must obey God rather than men. This should come again as no surprise to these people. You know, when you, when you gave these orders to us in chapter 4, you told us basically that we should not speak anymore in this man's name. We told you plainly that... But Peter and John answered there, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Look, don't be shocked. I told you this in chapter 4, you know. So he goes on. Peter is going to go on here. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So they were concerned that He was trying to bring this on them. You're trying to bring this man's blood on us. And, and two, notice that they, they constantly refer to Jesus as this man. You see a lot of disdain in that. This man's blood. We told you not to preach in this man's name. They're just, their utter contempt for Jesus is just seen throughout this. But it says here, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. And remember what we, we read over in chapter 23. They didn't believe in the resurrection. People like, sorry. If you don't believe in the resurrection, it doesn't matter. God raised Jesus from the dead. And he was with us for some seven weeks by many infallible proofs. Many people saw him. This wasn't just one guy making some false claim. He was seen by many. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Sorry if you don't believe in the resurrection. But this Jesus whom you killed, yes, blood is on your hands. And then it says God has exalted him to the right hand. Jesus is the Messiah. This is a, a Psalm 110 reference here. God has exalted Him. Jesus has the, the authority, as it says here, to forgive sins. 
He has forgiven him authority to forgive sin. This was a sticking point early in Jesus' ministry. You know, they, only God has the authority to forgive sins. But yet Jesus is God, so Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. Then it says repentance and forgiveness is, is offered here. Look, it's, it's offered to those who killed their Messiah, but they just won't have it. There's just so in there's just so much animosity and hatred and indignation and envy and jealousy. Here you are trying to put this man's blood on me. Then we see here it says the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit is given to believers, but believers here are used synonymously with those who obey Him. Right? It says that. So believers obey. That seems to be a clear teaching here. The Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. The Holy Spirit is given to believers. You, you see that being drawn out here. And then we're going to move on in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Peter preached a real similar message to this in Acts 2. And in Acts 2, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? They were filled with remorse and they repented in Acts 2. Here, there's, there's no remorse. There's no regret. There's only rage. They were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But, I'll read through 39 here, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But as if a God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. God's going to spare these twelve through an unbelieving Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was highly respected. He ends up being the, the mentor of the Apostle Paul we read later on. But really this advice he gives, I know it's regarded here and even, even out secular, I guess, it's regarded as sound advice, but it's really unsound advice. It's Gamaliel's counsel, and they take it. And he begins by bringing in a, really a history lesson. He talks about this man named Thetis and how Thetis had made himself out to be somebody and these people follow him. He dies and they kind of go away. And then he mentions this man named Judas who, um, again, was likewise a flash in the pan. And on the surface, we, we, we see some logic in this because we've had these things even in our lifetime. We've had guys like David Koresh in the Branch Davidians. Waco, Texas, you know, he claimed to be the Messiah. He passed away and that went to nothing. Jim Jones 
We have Marshall Applewhite, you know, the Heaven's Gate founder. And there's probably a number or host of others that I haven't named. But we've seen this. But to, to say that just because the leader of something passes away, it, it fizzles out, that's not always true. Joseph Smith, the Mormons, that's an example. Ellen White, the Seventh-day Adventist, another example. Muhammad, Islam, another example. So is Gamaliel's advice a perfect litmus test? And the, the answer is no. No. Is a movement... If a movement is successful and it has longevity, does that make it true? No. Well, that's pretty much what he's, Gamaliel's advice is saying. It's really pragmatism. So, so look, again, Mormons, Muslims, that's, I'd say, proof enough to say that this is not real sound advice. So taking this advice and running everything through this filter is pragmatism. If it works, it works, Right? And it's heralded as wise, but at its root is procrastination. It's actually a wait and see. Just wait and see what happens. Now, there, there is some truth buried in this advice. The truth is, if this movement is from God, you will not be able to stop it. That is 100% true. But it's truth that's been misapplied. And two, God has already answered this question. Look, they're attempting to stop the spreading of this message by arresting the 12 apostles. They arrested all of them. They put guards. They locked the door. The next morning, guards are present. Doors are locked. The apostles are gone. They're not able to stop them. So by their own standards, they've answered this question. God is supernaturally protecting them, enabling them, and they know it. They, have, they, they, have, they can't explain what's going on. Even going back to, to Christ, they wanted to, to snuff out Christ. They put a large stone covering His tomb, sealed it, and put a guard around it. And Jesus still rose in three days, just like He had told them He would. They have no explanation for how these apostles are performing these miracles. They actually have to silence the guards back in the days of Jesus. Just to, They have to bribe them to silence them. Look, but bottom line is, beside the fact that God has answered by their very own litmus test, God has provided the answer. But beside that, there's a lot of danger in this wait-and-see approach. One, it opposes biblical discernment. Look, we have the Word of God, and we have God-given discernment to decide if something is heretical. We're not instructed to wait and see. And again, waiting and seeing may mislead you, because success is not always the measure of truth. And just to, to drive it home, if Gamaliel's advice was a perfect principle, Mormonism and Islam is true. But don't take Gamaliel's advice and hold it up as a biblical doctrine. But their acceptance of this bad idea shows their lack of discernment. They just take this hook, line, and sinker. 
Guys, look, we have the Word of God. We need to filter everything through it. Not through this wait and see and see if it has success and see if it has longevity. That's not the standard. Scripture's a standard. All times. So anyway, so they take this really bad advice and they're, they're, they bring them in in verse 40. When they called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They bring in the apostles. This is a little bit different than a courtroom today where the jury seems to leave, deliberate, and then come back and give the verdict. Here they send the, you know, the, the prisoners out. They deliberate. Then they're going to bring them back in. Bring them in. And before they even read the verdict to them, they beat them. <laughs> and maybe, maybe they thought uh, it, it, a good beating would cause them to obey their strict orders. Maybe. Maybe they couldn't just contain their anger and hatred. And they just lashed out when they came in. And they beat them. And it, I look, look, our English use of this causes us to downplay this beating. You know, you would get in trouble as a kid. You would get spanked. You would get whipped. You would get beat, as we say. But the Moody Bible Commentary says that the Jewish flogging was done by leather whips. They gave them 13 lashes on the chest and 26 on the back for a total of 39 lashes. That's the 40 minus 1, which was the standard. This word could also be translated as flay. It is to open up the skin. Look, this was incredibly painful. My parents never beat me like this. We use that language when you get popped three times. This was not a slap on the wrist or a bend over in three licks. This, this was a beating, a full-fledged beating. And note, too, that their obedience to God led to a beating. Not the best life now, Osteen. So let's read on. It says here in verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council after being beat, and charged not to speak anymore in his name, they left the presence of the council rejoicing, that's odd, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Christ, that is. Look, it's, it's interesting too in this section. Three times Luke specifically states that the high priest is leading this attack. It's the high priest that's, that's kind of you know, quarterback in this thing. The high priest's intentions was to stand between God and man as a mediator. He was to offer sacrifices on their behalf. And this is their high priest? And I know, you know, maybe it may be said that we don't need a high priest today. Maybe we should better say we don't need a fallible human priest today. But if Jesus is not mediating for you, if Jesus has not made atonement for you, you're without hope. Amen. We do need a high priest. We need a mediator. And Jesus fulfills that role perfectly. But they lead that, that beating, they're rejoicing, they're, they're been honored by God by being dishonored by men. 
And they're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for His name. That, by the way, is passive. You know, they didn't count themselves worthy. They were counted worthy by the, by the religious leaders. They deemed them just as big a threat to their fiat religion as Christ. So they treated them in the same manner as Christ. That was something to rejoice in. Verse 42 says, And every day, so did they take the advice after they got beat? Did that really help? No. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus Christ, or that Christ is Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. They have total disregard for these threats. Their commitment to God is, is unquestionable. Their commitment to His message, their obedience to God. It's, this is just a, um, an amazing passage because I, if you read this and you see everything they went through, all the threats and the beatings and the, 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 the hatred from these religious leaders, and yet they still have the boldness and courage to go forth, it really just puts us to shame. Because we face nothing, nothing like this. And are we, are we doing every day, every day, in the temple, in the, from house to house, they're, they're teaching, they're preaching that Jesus is the only way, He's the only way to have forgiveness from your sins. They're bold. They, have, they, they see opportunities at every, at every turn. And we're just wait. I don't know what sometimes we wait on. Myself included. Maybe somebody to come up and just ask, you know, and just fill in the blank, and I just got one or two little boxes to check. But the way they just, they just see opportunity around every corner. And they, they don't hesitate to spread the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I do pray that we could carry forth some of this boldness ourselves and do much, much better because He's worthy. In Jesus' name. Would please stand.